Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Today we will begin with this very famous passage uh, beginning in verse 42. And we're going to begin with confession time. I struggle with worrying as your pastor that I'm doing enough. Constant thing. I worry if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, whether I'm adequately fulfilling my call to minister to Trinity Presbyterian Church. And, you know, I, I look around at other churches and am tempted to play the comparison game, and I see what they're doing, and I ask myself, should we be doing that? Should I be doing that? Is our church faithfully doing what God has called us to do? And those questions can haunt you as a minister and bring anxiety, insecurity. And maybe I could fool you into thinking that these questions come only from pure motives. That, you know, I just want to be faithful. I just want to glorify God. I just want to mirror Jesus and be a faithful under-shepherd to this flock he has entrusted to my care. But the truth is that a lot of the time that those questions could be attributed to a heart problem of mine. I'm not referring to a physical or medical problem, but to a spiritual problem. The problem of idolizing my work, caving to the fear of man, wanting to please people, wanting to receive praise, wanting this church to be great, and wanting this church to be praised out in the community so that the man at the helm would be seen as great and receive praise as well. See, it's more about me and my glory and not God and his glory. I would imagine that some of you could relate to that. Not specifically to the ministry here at Trinity, but to your own work, whether it's in the home or outside of the home. You may ask questions like, am I doing enough? You see what others are doing, and it looks like they're doing great. And you say, should I, should I be doing that? Is there something wrong with me? And maybe, just maybe, some of the stress and anxiety and insecurity you feel is coming from a similar place as to what I described. A heart that cares more about our glory than God's. It's something for us to be aware of. Pray about. Now back to Trinity. Are there things we should be doing as a church? Absolutely. Yes. The answer to my confession I just made is not to stop caring what we do as a church. We should care. We should ask important questions of ourselves as a church. The session should be able to answer questions as to why our church does certain things and not others. Maybe there are things other churches are doing that we should be doing. Maybe there are things in other churches we should not be doing. But how do we know? How do we answer that question? God gives us 
much help in his word. This morning, in this passage, I believe we are given four marks, four essentials that must be a part of any healthy local church. This is not a comprehensive list. This is not everything you must have in a healthy local church, but I believe these are very important things, and if you lack any one of these four, your local church will not be healthy. We're given a model here of the four marks or four essentials to the life of every healthy local church. These four things found in our passage are study, fellowship, worship, and evangelism. That's my sermon outline, by the way. Study, fellowship, worship, and evangelism. But before we look at those four, let's ask the Lord to bless this reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father God, would you water the hearts of these hearers with your word? Father, we know that what is seen, what is sown in weakness, you raise in power. Father, would we behold glorious things in your word, and would we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ? We ask this in his name. Amen. Before we get into these four essentials or four marks of the local church, I need to quickly say that, of course, this was not a perfect church. It's easy to view the early church in Acts, especially this passage in, at the end of chapter 2, kind of through rose-colored glasses, and they could really do no wrong. But as we'll see, as we progress in the book of Acts, you see that this is a church that had issues just like every other church. There were hypocrites in this church. There, were, there was doctrinal errors in this church. And that's because this church, just like every other church, was made up of sinners. That's something helpful for us to remember. That there is no perfect church here on earth, and you can look and look and look, and you will not find one. The only perfect church today is the gathering of saints Assembled in glory before the throne of Jesus. That's it. So just like our church, just like every other church in redemptive history, the early church had issues. And yet, what we see in this brief snapshot is a model. It is an example for us to follow. So let's look at it. First, study. This church was a studying church. Learning church. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and of prayers. What's the first thing that Luke lists there? There are so many things that Luke could have led with in this description of the church, but the first thing he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was a studying church. This was a church that wanted to better understand the teachings of the apostles. 
The apostles were those men who were specifically chosen by Jesus Christ to lead and teach and continue the gospel ministry. They studied the teachings of these men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, these men who remembered the words of Jesus. I don't know if you remember back in John 14, 26, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Jesus tells them, he says, after I've returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to you and he will remind you of everything I've taught. You are to teach, you are to instruct, you are to make disciples, and that's what happened. These men were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They preached, they taught, they wrote letters, they put into print the life and teachings of Jesus. And the early church devoted itself to these writings. There was a serious commitment on the part of the early church to study and learn and grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. To mature and move from spiritual milk to solid food. Now, the early church, they had questions just like you and I. Questions like, why is the work of Christ important? How is he both God and man? Why did he die? What's the significance of the resurrection? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to love the Lord? How does this affect my relationships with my spouse and children and neighbors and coworkers? And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. Now, it's important to note that they don't just follow these teachings blindly, but they compare these teachings with Old Testament Scripture. The Bereans in Acts 17, we'll get to them in time, but they're an example. We're told that those Jews in Berea, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. The Scriptures here were the Old Testament Scriptures. And so these Jews received the teachings of the apostles, did so with eagerness, and then opened up their Old Testaments to see if everything lined up. In order for us to be a faithful, spirit-filled church, we've got to be devoted to studying the teachings of Scripture. And it might surprise you to hear those words, spirit-filled and studying together, because I think a lot of our exposure when we hear spirit-filled, we think of charismatic churches and spirit-filled refers to dancing or singing loudly or different things like that. But that's exactly what we see next too. You have a spirit-filled church that is studying. John Calvin made the comment that teaching is the soul of the church. And we agree. This is why we, as a church, give prominence to Scripture. It's why we give prominence to preaching. It's why I give serious thought to the words that we sing every Sunday. It's why we have Sunday school. It's why we have Bible studies and book studies and 
why we teach our children the catechism? Because this was a mark of the early church, being devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Now, what about on an individual level? It's easy to say, yes, yes, yes. We're, we're a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. We sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible. But what about at home? Is it a personal priority of yours to grow in the knowledge of the Lord? Or are you just content with, all right, I got the Apostles' Creed, that's enough. That's all I need. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of the Lord? Are you drawn to the Scriptures? Do you want to know more and more about Him? D.A. Carson gives a helpful, convicting comment here. He says, quote, Those who truly come to know God delight just to know Him. He becomes their center. They think of Him. Delight in him. Boast of him. They want to know more and more what kind of God he is. For the better we know God, the more we will want all of our existence to revolve around him. And we will see that the only goals and plans that really matter are those that are somehow tied to God himself and to our eternity with him. End quote. I think that's something every single one of us can pray for. That we would more and more delight in Him and boast in Him and come to see Him as the center and that our existence revolves around Him. That's something we could pray for. That God would give us that desire and that devotion to know Him more and more through His Word. Quick thing before we move on, before you, before you say, all right, well, I've, I've just got to, I've got to go home and study more. Uh, grace needs to be the motivation for this study. We don't study so that we'll be right, so that we can win an argument with our friends, or so that we'll have all the answers, or we'll be perceived as wise we realize that this God has saved us and that He is our only hope in life and in death and that we will spend eternity in the enjoyment of His presence. So because of that, we want to have the clearest, most accurate ideas about Him as possible. This was a church that studied. Secondly, they were a church that fellowshiped. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not only did this church devote themselves to teaching, but also to fellowship. And this is another essential in the life of the church. And we need to clear up what is meant by this word fellowship. I think fellowship's a lot like the word love. It's, we uh, watered it down over time. Um, I, I, with good intentions, but it's become watered down. Like, I, I love my pocket knife, and I love Arby's, and we water it down. 
It's the same with, with fellowship. We, fellowship has just kind of become, oh, well, that was, a, that was a nice potluck meal. That was fellowship. Or, man, that donuts and coffee and just catching up with the person in the back before church, that was some good fellowship. Fellowship is far deeper than that. I, I heard another minister define Christian fellowship as a profound personal commitment to sharing life with your church family. A profound personal commitment to sharing life with your family. That's what they were doing. These were not just acquaintances. They weren't friends who would visit with each other once a week when they saw each other in worship. No, there was a deep personal commitment for them to share lives with one another. The Greek word for fellowship is, it's one of those Greek words a lot of people are aware of, even if they don't know Greek, koinonia. And it means to hold something in common, to share in common with. That's what this word means. Paul illustrates that for us in Philippians. He writes to the Philippians saying that he is sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul is saying that he's suffering, he's experiencing difficulty, but that's what it means to be in union with Christ. He's in fellowship with his sufferings. That's what we see here, a closely knit group of friends bound together by the love of God. And what were these close friends doing? Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together... And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So there were obviously some in the early church who were poor and had financial needs. And then there were others who were wealthy and had much. And the depth of this fellowship caused those who had much to sell a portion of what they had and to give those proceeds to those who were in need. Now, this is the point where people historically have argued that the Bible teaches communism. Anyone ever heard that before? Here's an example. There's no private property. Everyone's sharing their goods and services and everyone's happy, right? Well, no, this is not communism. And the reason is simple, and it's communism is compulsory. You don't choose to give in a communist government. You're forced to give. And if you refuse to give, you wind up in a gulag or shot. But here in the early church, no one is being forced to give. This selling of possessions and belongings... And sharing the proceeds wherever there was a need, it is all voluntary. This is a generosity that has been produced by the Holy Spirit. This body of believers has learned the generosity of God. They've experienced that generosity themselves in their adoption and forgiveness of sins. And so they wanted to be generous with one another. You see, human governments can attempt to copy God's way 
but human governments can't change the human heart. Only God can do that. The question for us to ask ourselves is first, how do we view all of these other people around us? All these other people sitting with you in this room right now, how do we view them? Are they just some nice people that we see once a week and we'll visit with them and smile and talk to them, but that's really the extent of it? Or are you pursuing fellowship with them? I would remind you that this is something we need to strive for. Strive for deep, committed relationships. Relationships that are bound together and unified by the common love of God. I know sometimes we wish that we could just have God without the church, but we can't. The closer God draws us to himself, the closer he's going to draw us to his people. And the more time we spend around God's people, the more uh, the, the closer we'll grow to God. And so we need to be intentional and pursue this fellowship with one another. Another application here involves giving. And you knew this was coming. The application is that you are not required to give up everything you have. You are not required to sell all of your possessions and give up all private property and give everything to the poor. So you can breathe a sigh of relief there. But you are called to be generous, especially in your dealings with the church, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What we see in Scripture, what we're reminded of is that Our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. So you have your private property. But you need to understand that your private property, what you've been given, has been given to you by God. And your possessions, my possessions, they don't belong to us. They belong to him. And we're simply stewards. I'm sure the, those in the early church started with the same view that we all start with, that we view our possessions as mine and we hold on to them tightly. You have yours, I have mine. But this church came to see that they were simply stewards. And they started asking the question of how can I use what I've been given to glorify God and bless my neighbor? That's what they did. The third thing we see here is worship. It's probably the least surprising of the three that worship is a mark of the church. But we see uh, several aspects of worship here. Um, Beginning, we'll start in verse 44 again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. There's mention here 
back in verse 42 of breaking of bread and prayers. And you'll see that there's a definite article before those two. Definite article is a fancy grammatical way of saying the. There's a the before those two words. So you have the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that the is emphasizing something. They aren't simply breaking bread. This is the breaking of bread. We know that to be the Lord's Supper. This sacrament that was a part of this community that was commanded by the Lord. That was the supper that they enjoyed together. And then there are the prayers. The prayers, this is formal language. It suggests that they're attending temple together. Actually, we're told here that they're attending temple together. But they're joining in prayer together. This was a worshiping church. But what we see here is that this worship did not, it was not limited to the temple, but also their homes. They brought the worship of God home with them. Here's another question for us. Do we bring the worship of God into our home? Or does it stay here in this room? Maybe we talk about the things of God and we celebrate the things of God, but that stays in this room and it doesn't get in the car and go home with us. It doesn't go back to our office. We'll pray in this room, but we don't pray outside of this room. We'll sing songs to God, but that stays here, not at home. What we see in this church is that their worship was not only corporate, but their worship went home with them. I hope that we don't only speak about the things of God on Sunday. I hope that you don't only think about the things of God when you're gathered in this building, but that you take this worship home and pray together, read scripture together, talk about the things of God together in our homes. The fourth and final mark we see in the life of a healthy church is evangelism. We tend to complicate evangelism or to formalize it so that, you know, the evangelists are the only ones who evangelize. But I would simply define evangelism as sharing the good news of the gospel of grace with others. Talking to folks about Jesus. That's it. We read in verse 47, the end of this passage. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke is telling us that day after day, more and more people are believing the gospel and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how does this happen? Well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly that the people were evangelizing. He says that the Lord added to their number, and it was the Lord. It's the Lord who calls. It's the Lord who draws. It's the Lord who saves. We know salvation belongs to the Lord, to quote Jonah 2 in Psalm 3. It is only the Lord who's able to make us alive with Christ, even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But in that process of bringing sinners to salvation... Our God uses means. 
He uses men, women, boys, and girls. Paul gives us a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You know, we're in that time of the year when everything is craning up and people are getting excited and spending a lot more time outside and <clears throat> planting flowers and vegetable gardens. I know we had a scare this past week and you may have had to cover some plants up because of the late frost. But think about this. <clears throat> you can go to a nursery. You can purchase a plant. Take that plant home, bury it in the ground, surround it with fertile soil, water that plant, but you cannot make that plant grow. Maybe the illustration might work better with a seed. You cannot make that seed grow. You can put it in fertile soil, water it, but you cannot make it grow. That's the picture of evangelism. It's the picture we see here in verse 47. There were men and women in the early church who were sowing the seed of the gospel among their friends, relatives, neighbors. They were scattering and they were planting and they were watering those seeds, but it was the Lord who gave the growth. He works through the church. And that means that you and I have to be active. We need to talk to others about this gospel of grace. We sow, we plant, we water these gospel seeds, and then we pray that God would give the growth. You need to understand that the Lord has placed you in a particular context around particular people, and he plans to use you. And you have inroads that I do not have. Because as soon as people find out I'm a minister, their disposition completely changes. I was eating lunch this week, and there was a guy at a a couple tables away, and I was introduced as the pastor of Trinity, and this guy instantly said, oh, well, I'm going to watch what I say. People will change, and behind every joke, there's an element of truth. But you, all the rest of you, you might be able to get into places where I can't. And God has placed you in a specific context, and he wants to use you to plant and water these gospel seeds. Second thing that we need to notice, it says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. These Christians had favor with all people. Now, now I know later there's going to be riots in Ephesus. Uh, there's going to be uh, an angry mob that kills Stephen in just a few chapters. But here we're reminded of, of, of a principle that we should strive for. And that's to find favor with, with people. They, they, they were not turned off by the gospel. These early Christians, they weren't rude, they weren't selfish, they weren't proud. Rather, the way that they loved one another and they cared for one another and the way they loved their community, it was winsome, it was attractive, and it caused them to gain favor in the sight of their community. What descriptors are associated with your name here in Corinth? If your coworkers or neighbors or other people in the community, if, if they were polled, what would they say 
about your name. Maybe you believe the right stuff, but do your actions and the way you live cause your name to find favor in their sight? Last thing. It's this, God does not save Christians to be lone rangers. Here in this last verse, we see the Lord added to their number daily those, by the, uh, those who were being saved. Every day the Lord was adding to the number. He was not bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus and then just sending them out to be on their own. He was adding to their number. He was bringing them into the church. We are saved individually. We have to make an individual profession of faith. We ourselves have to repent, but once we do, we are brought into the church. We're brought into community. We aren't meant to live in isolation. What ways are you or have you isolated yourself from the church or from the fellowship of the body? What ways can you help bring others who are isolated or have isolated themselves? How can you bring them into the church? God will use you. He wants to use you. But how will you respond to the call he's given? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this example, may we see a mark to shoot at. Father, would you grow our love and our study of your word? Father, as as those who have come to a saving knowledge of you, it only makes sense that we would want to know more and more about the God who has saved us. But Father, we have hard hearts and we've got, our souls have tough skin. Father, would you help us? Would you increase this desire and this devotion to the study and reading of your word? Father, would you help us to see that everybody in this room, that we aren't acquaintances or we aren't even friends or buddies, but Father, we are a fellowship of believers. And would you help us to live very intentional, deep relationships with one another where we sacrifice and generously give of our time and our abilities and our resources to help one another and to meet where there is a need or a want. Father, would you help us to see the wonderful gift of the church that you've given to us. Father, we ask that you would always continually be a part of our worship when we gather, that we would worship in spirit and truth and that it would not just be some rote weekly habit, but it would be life-giving to our souls and glorifying to you. And Father, lastly, would we talk to people about Jesus? The gospel of grace is such a a wonderful, glorious thing, and it is not meant to be kept under a basket. Father, would we talk about Jesus? Would we be used? Would we do so in a truthful way, but a gentle and humble way 
so that we might find favor with those in the community. Father, would you use us? We ask this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.